This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, We'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So, whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports podcasting experience. Uh, Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Again, that is bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box for this episode to find more, but that is bwhustle.com slash join. Join Chase Thomas pod the Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Monday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast, presented by Blue Wire. Uh, I am joined by old friend Neil Payne. Neil, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you, Chase? I am good. I'm good. Um, how uh, how goes the NBA watching? Who have uh, you been watching a lot lately? Uh, well, I wrote about the Utah Jazz last week. Just mm-hmm. I think everyone has. Yep. Uh, so uh, uh, they've they've definitely been a team that um, I've been uh, looking at pretty closely. And you know, uh, we're just coming off a Bucks Clippers game. You know, there's all kinds of um, uh, mid season intrigue. I feel like as we head into the uh, All Star break, and then it'll all just stop and reset, and then we'll kind of look forward to the second half. Yeah, I'm excited. The Jazz we'll get to because you've written about the Jazz. Friend of the pod, Jonathan Charks, has written about the Jazz. Everyone's talking about the Jazz in the podcast. Um, the The basketball discourse um, has gone off the deep end in some ways where um, people really lost their minds. Were you watching that live uh, when Michael Porter Jr. sprinted to the corner rather than uh, going straight to the hoop um, in that game? I don't even remember who they were playing now because that was several days ago, but uh, Jamal Murray uh, ended up doing a loop pass to i don't even know is it who did he even end up finding i don't even remember off the top of my this head. was the uh the fast break that turned into a three-pointer yes yeah <laughs> i was not watching it live i saw a lot of people reacting to it online though well it's just i saw there was um not to start any wars here uh neil but there was a there was a video that came out like the day after this all happened and um about like nerds are ruining sports because of this (laughs) like this was like something that spawned all of this where it's like well no that's not what analytics says and there's a really good um baseball podcast that talked about this i think it's baseball and breakdowns on mlb.com by mike petriallo who talked about this where he was he was saying like we just use this word analytics and now no one even knows what that word means and no one even understands like what that actually means what it actually entails 
uh, how to use it. And um, I don't know, I got very frustrated listening to that video and frustrated listening to the discourse and seeing the comments where it's like, yeah, basket, like this wouldn't happen 20 years ago. These players are getting brainwashed and they're running to the corner when they're supposed to run to the rim. And it's like, well, no, that's the rim's the best shot. Like that's what we all want. Um, this was just like a collective uh, brain fart, right? <laughs> yeah, and it kind of reminds me of um, something that I saw in football a lot also, uh, especially this season during the playoffs, of this equating like something that I think analysts and, and numbers guys had sort of pushed for, which is uh, being aggressive, maybe going for two or going for it on fourth down. I forget exactly what play uh, led to this. Uh, and I think people like heard that enough. And in basketball, obviously, the version of that is shoot threes uh, that you kind of hear that enough and you think, OK, well, the analytics always say to go for it on fourth down. The analytics always say to shoot a three. And it's sort of like, uh, you know, it, that's not true. I mean, it, it may be true in a lot of cases, but it, there's still, you know, you have to either do the mental math or kind of intuit it uh, as, as you're playing the game as to whether it makes sense to do something. So I, I think uh, a lot of people have sort of heard these analytics like do this more type of, you know, guidelines uh, that when people weren't doing those things almost at all or, or not nearly enough maybe that was true that just sort of drill it into your head to do the this particular action a lot more uh and and you'll win more but uh i think that can be conflated with always do it uh, no matter the context and i think nobody who is a um uh, an analytics uh person would say there are any hard and fast rules as to like always do xyz it's it's you know to put yourself in the best position to win uh consider doing this more uh but don't overdo it if if the situation uh demands you know something that's common sense uh and i think on that particular play i'm not sure what happened i didn't necessarily hear what any of the players involved uh said uh you know their rationale was but i think saying that it's oh well the analytics told you to do that is just kind of uh, not true even if you do a little back of the envelope math about like the odds of making even a wide open three versus the odds of converting on that fast break and and then you know even if you assume overtime uh which you would force would be a coin flip it made sense to go to the rim and and convert that uh and and play for the tie so i think that that's a case where it's sort of people are saying that analytics has has advised a certain thing but if you do even just rudimentary math it's pretty clear that they would not advise that under that circumstance no and i i threw this at you neil because i assume i mean i love 538 and you're not going to believe this neil but um sports can be complicated and it's okay to <laughs> enjoy both things and it's okay to try and broaden your understanding by reading data and watching the games and using both it's 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 amazing that you could do both <laughs> but i imagine just like you put up with the, that a lot over the years of just like what kind of articles that you write and um what people want is there is that still a thing or is it this point that most basketball fans and most basketball readers at 538 are they know what they're getting into and they know and they they like it and they enjoy it yeah, I think that's true, not just at our site, but across a lot of the the places that write about basketball or break things down um, is just that I think the audience is so sophisticated now and their expectations are just a lot more savvy about statistics and data that uh, you don't have those people as much. I mean, I, you know, it's still you get the odd email, you get the odd uh, tweet uh, about, you know, watch the games games aren't played in a spreadsheet <laughs> or whatever they, you know those old comments but it really is kind of remarkable how um uh in the last you know six seven years we've seen that go down so much and now it really is almost um the people are so savvy that uh they'll complain that you didn't necessarily, you know, break down things in as much detail or that, that uh, you like forgot a certain aspect that might slightly tip the the scales in a certain direction. So uh, I think that's a good thing. I mean, uh, it, I think, has elevated the level of discourse. You talked about the, the basketball discourse, capital B, capital mm -hmm. D, uh, that, that the level of that is 
way, way, way higher than it was a decade ago. And I think it's um, it's not because of, uh, you know, any one particular outlet or anything like that. But I just think it's the way that fans want to consume the game now. They do want to watch, obviously, and people are, you know, watching it constantly and tweeting about it and everything. But they also, like you said, they want that other avenue of enjoying it, which is, you know, enjoying the numbers, diving into those and and mixing those two together. So it's actually been great to see. I think it's very validating for somebody who was around at the very beginning of the the analytics movement in basketball to see how much that has made its way into the way teams make decisions mm. and the way fans enjoy the game. It's it's really been kind of incredible that it has gotten so much traction. And if you compare that to something like baseball, which now is at the same level, you know, people uh, the the discourse is still is is uh, as analytical as it is in basketball. Uh, but it took a lot longer, and there was a lot of time uh, since people like Bill James and, and folks like that started uh, first breaking down baseball in that way. It took a lot longer for it to get to this point, whereas in basketball, it's been a lot in a comparatively much shorter period of time to get to this uh, level of discourse. I will say, um, writing about baseball is significantly more uh, nerve-wracking for me <laughs> than uh, basketball writing. And it's because it's just I read so many smart baseball people and like – when you feel kind of like I, I can't match what Jay Jaffe or Keith Law are bringing to the table, I can't bring like what what am I doing? Like you read the baseball prospectus writers and the Fangraphs writers and the Beyond the Box Score writers, and it's just they it, it, you just feel inept. I'm like I I majored in journalism. I'm in grad school for communications. I'm not I I'm not well versed enough. I don't feel confident enough in what I'm doing. Like I understand weighted runs created plus, but like there's still something about it where like it's it's nerve wracking to to write about baseball. I think uh, nowadays. But um, I just wanted to throw that at you because that was something that I, I thought about. It was not even on a run, but I was just thinking about that. Neil, um, who have you been watching this week though? A lot of who? What basketball team have you noticed that you've been drawn to more on League Pass or anywhere else? Well, you know, the Heat, uh, I think we're mm. going to talk about them later uh, also, but I've noticed, you know, I have this output of of teams that are sort of hot or cold over the past week, over the past two weeks, and uh, the Heat have been uh, the hottest team over the past two weeks. Uh, they've edged out Phoenix. They've edged out Washington. Uh, it has kind of put on a little bit of a run. And then Memphis is a team that's been the hottest over the past week. Uh, they've won two out of three, uh, really put a hurting on Houston, which, you know, uh, is uh, depending on the night, uh, either that is raises an eyebrow or doesn't, uh, depending on what's what's going on with them at a given time. But, yeah, I think uh, a lot of people, you know, the Jazz have been sucking up so much of the oxygen in the in the room uh, because they've been on this incredible hot streak that I think maybe um, people start turning their attention toward uh, second half storylines that include them, but also like the teams that seem to be maybe figuring out, maybe turning things around uh, and just what the second half has in store because the the we didn't even know the schedule. I mean, we had a rough idea of it, um, but we didn't know for sure what that would look like uh, until last week uh so uh, i think that that's kind of where where i'm at and and sort of thinking about yes the all-star break and all that but also thinking about teams that maybe didn't have the best first half or maybe underperformed but are they going to be able to turn things around because it's it was such a strange compressed off season uh, you know there was a lot of player movement in like the weeks leading up to opening day uh and so i, I think it's fair to give some of the teams in the first half, maybe a little bit of a pass uh, compared to what you usually would because there just wasn't enough time to develop a rhythm around, um, you know, the the new faces and the new lineups that teams are trying to go with. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to we'll we'll get to my favorites in the Jazz and the Heat as of right now because they're both different. They're they're interesting for very different reasons. I think um, a team that I have watched a lot of this year. Um, I don't know how much you've watched of them, but the Patrick Williams pick, I think, surprised a lot of people when that happened. Um, there's still a lot of people that are in on Wendell Carter. Um, Laurie Markkinen, I'm less in on. 
but Zach Levine playing really good basketball for them this year. Kobe White now turning into maybe the question mark where it's like, okay, like I penciled him, this is DJ Augustine. And now it's like, okay, maybe he could be a starting point guard in this league. And then you go back and forth and there's some games that he shows it and there are others that you're not. And you're like, well, I mean, it's not going to be on this team because you can't have a backcourt of Zach Levine and Kobe White in today's NBA. It's just too small. They're just going to get shredded all the time. But then you watch them play, and Thad Young is just a gobbling machine on the boards, and it makes sense. Like, you look at their guys who play, and outside of Denzel Valentine, who results in plays where he'll take some crazy one-footer, and um, Zach Levine will just put his hands up like, what are you doing? Um, The Bulls are really, really fascinating to me. They're in the mix of the playoffs. They're a 500 team. Billy Donovan's really coaching them up well. But what's interesting, maybe more so than anything, a Zach Levine offense with this group is extremely efficient. How how the Bulls become such an efficient team this season offensively? Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Yeah, there are, uh, you know, I was talking about the looking at teams that had been really coming on uh, over the past few weeks. They're right there in that conversation. Uh, you know, maybe not quite as strong as a team like Miami, but they're sort of gaining steam. Uh, and yeah, it does seem to have a lot to do with their offense. I mean, they're still they're 15th in offensive rating. So it's sort of like it's an improvement on what they were last year. I believe they were 27th and just seemed totally out of sorts. Uh, uh, but, you know, they're starting starting to kind of figure things out. Uh, and you're right that this is a team that has some different pieces from last year. You know, no more Chris Dunn. Uh, you've got Patrick Williams in that mix. Uh, you know, Garrett Temple. Uh, some of these guys that they're kind of, kind of figuring things out. I think that that's an example of what um, we were just talking about. Uh, and yeah, Zach Levine has been one of the most improved offensive players, at least uh, in the league, I think. And you could say... Uh, you could just look at Thaddeus Young. I think um, I'm glad you mentioned him because he is kind of a bellwether for them uh, as a guy that really was frankly not all that great last year and didn't really seem to have like the right role for him. And I'm a huge Thaddeus Young fan, you know, going back to Georgia, Georgia Tech. Tech. I knew uh, this was coming. I yeah, knew this was coming. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, really one of my favorite all-time players because I feel like he's been one of the most underrated players in the league for a long time. Like when we look back on his career, not I don't think he's going to be a Hall guy. of Famer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think he's going to be a Hall of Famer, but at the same time, uh, he'll he'll probably be in that like Hall of Very Good kind of category where people uh, didn't necessarily appreciate him in his time, and then they look back when he's finally retired. And I should say he's still only thirty-two. You know, he's got mm. a lot left in his tank, even though he feels like he's been around forever at this point yeah but he's a guy that just does like a lot of different stuff well and and maybe that was why last year you know seeing him not really be able to carve out like uh the right offensive role was a little jarring well this year you know they're they're having him do more distributing uh his assist rate is up i believe 15 percentage points this year compared with last year he's playing way more efficiently uh, and, and scoring really well. Uh, and and it's kind of interesting because uh, this is another thing that goes maybe against the analytics is you would think a guy taking fewer threes would become less efficient, but Thaddeus Young has uh, taken way fewer threes and he's become a lot more efficient this year. But I think it's about the role that he's playing in that offense and the fact that he's not a guy that uh, they, they need to play that role because they have other guys that can kind of slot in and, and do that job. And having him play as more of kind of a, a passer, uh, I think, and, and an inside scorer has contributed to their improvement on offense as much as anything. So uh, it's it's great to see him be kind of the focal point. And I, I don't know what the potential of this team is. Uh, you know, I think that... Um, they still have a ways to go to really be much more than a team that, you know, like in the East, obviously, the a lot of different teams of, of perhaps mediocre quality are going to make the playoffs. But um, I, I don't know that the, uh, the Bulls can make noise, but I think it's encouraging to see them try to kind of figure out the mix of, of talent that they have. And th- I would think that they would be a better team in the second half than they have been for most of the first half. 
Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how they they look at um, they look at the deadline because this is a new front office. It's not just a new coaching staff; it's a new front office. They are not attached to any of these pieces. Like some of these are very recent lottery picks, but they're not attached to any of them. So um, it depends on what does Jerry Reinsdorf want to get in the playoffs this year? Does he want some playoff revenue? Because there will be at least some fans uh, for these games. So does he just looking at this season like, yeah, we're we're not moving Levine or Young or any of these guys? No, let's just do this, make the playoffs, get a little bit of extra revenue. Um, and see what happens next year. Um, but I mean, it's and I like that. Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, maybe now we're in a point. I know, uh, having gone through uh, the process and the the influx of tanking across the league, I I do hope that teams like the Bulls are kind of indicative of maybe a new dawn in which you it's okay to aim for like. A pretty good team, a decent team, you know, and and roll the dice and see what happens. Especially, I like I said in the East, uh, you know, there aren't that many teams that are uh, five uh, that are better than five hundred. I'll say I think there's only four team uh, four teams that are better than five hundred in the East. So this is a situation where you could uh, just a little bit of effort and a little bit of like, you know, going out and getting like one small minor role player type of piece could vault you into like a, uh, a home advantage in the, in a first round playoff series or something like that, as crazy as that is to say. Um, so I, I do think there's an extra advantage to that by being in that um, in, in the East compared with the West where you're going to have a 500 team, maybe miss the playoffs or, or a, above 500 team. If, if, uh, you know, if they're uh, unlucky and right around the fringe. Absolutely. Are you are you out on Laurie Markkinen? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, he's still 23. Uh, I don't think that uh, he's shown the improvement that you would like to see, but he's still playing a little bit better than last year. I think uh, his his offensive efficiency gives you hope that um, he could potentially be, you know, a, a pretty good uh, role player you know, on a decent team. I think that that's kind of, maybe that's not what people were expecting for him um, when he came into the league. But at the same time, you know, I'm not like giving up on, on a 23 year old that has a, a 116 offensive rating. Fair. Um, Jalen Brunson. Uh, a lot of people, if you don't watch a lot of Mavs games this year, you don't, you might not know that he's closing for the Mavs and that he is an important <laughs> uh, guy next to, next to Luka Doncic. And he takes a lot of, a uh, lot of stuff off Lucas plate when he needs to. Um, Josh Richardson has not been good for Dallas this year. He's getting a little bit better as of late, but Jalen Brunson has been kind of the key cog in that backcourt to keep everything going. Um, losing Seth Curry really hurt them, and that trade does not look all that great for Dallas um, this early on. But how important in your estimation is Jalen Brunson for Dallas to get back to 500 right now? Yeah, I think he is important for that reason that you talk about uh, having someone who's like a supporting creator and ball handler other than Luca. And maybe the Mavs showed, you know, last year they were hyper efficient offensively and they did it with Luca just taking on basically all of the weight and all of the workload. Uh, like I think they're, you know, uh, DeLon Wright was their second highest assist rate guy uh, during the regular season. Now, you know, he's not there. Uh, and so I, I think it's almost like when people talk about this word heliocentrism uh, in basketball and kind of putting everything on your star and having them make all the decisions and every play filtered through them. You know, we've seen that work to certain degrees or another. Uh, you know, James Harden is kind of the ultimate helocentric player, uh, and maybe in NBA history, uh, you know, uh, maybe Wilt Chamberlain is the the one exception to that. Um, but I, I do think that maybe you know the Mavs saw a little bit of the the limits of that approach last year when you have Luca just basically doing all the facilitating, and everyone else on the team is you know, working around him on that. And so it's been encouraging to see Jalen Brunson slot in there. Obviously, Luca's having a great season as well. But just to be that secondary creator, that secondary facilitator that I do think teams need, I, uh, you know, as much as we we love the the heliocentric approach and, and having your star uh, be involved in everything, there are 
I think are limits to that and and it makes you um easier to defend uh in a lot of ways even if you have somebody like Luca who is so transcendent so just having someone else out there that can um also be a threat to create not just for themselves but for other players and kind of work around your star I I think that's important to have Absolutely um I love thinking about all the different young players I love thinking about with this point in time when it's all critical to see um, where they're going to be and what kind of players they're going to be role players. Gonna, like when, uh, like what age do they get to where it's like, okay, we're not the, this is it. This is who they are. And Sam Bassini does a really good job of this at the athletic. And I wanted to pick your brain on this because the 31 through 50 number, those guys are more interesting to me they're, Like they're the ones that are like definite that we know, we, we know who these people are going to be. They're going to be the stars. Like those are the easy identifiers. That's not really interesting to me. The ones that's interesting. It's like PJ Washington who went for 42 last night. And you're like, well, if PJ Washington is a difference maker, because they already hit on Lamelo, we know they hit on Lamelo. We know what Terra Azir is off ball for the Hornets. We know what a lot of these guys are, and it's like, oh, suddenly they have more intrigue because for every Malik Monk you miss on, you need to have some uh, PJ Washingtons that you hit on, and um, the draft is an inexact science and it's difficult. That all being said, from this group, who do you who do you believe in the most to this point? Who do you who fascinates you? Maybe uh, is the better way of framing this the most well well uh yeah i mean some of the some of the names on there are uh are interesting they've been playing well but you know somebody like Derek white he's already 26 i kind of see that as being like maybe he's a guy who's who's peaking and playing really well uh but you know some of the, a younger player has has more room to grow uh so i've got my eye on some of the younger names on the list like i think jared allen is really interesting um you know he's a guy that rates really well in our metric called raptor uh which measures a player's Love uh, contribution yes thank you yes uh don't ask me to to remember what the acronym stands for <laughs> But it measures your your impact on the court essentially per 100 possessions, and it accounts for all these different factors, not only just box score stats, but also your on-court versus off-court impact, your player tracking stats and all these things, and, and tries to kind of figure out you know, who has been uh, adding value while they're on the court. And uh, Jared Allen is a guy the past couple seasons uh, that that has been one of the better big men in that metric. He's a plus three point nine per one hundred possessions guy this year, uh, and so and he's only twenty two. So I think that that uh, makes him really interesting. Uh, I also like Dante Divincenzo. You know, he's a guy that I think has gotten a little more attention uh, in in recent years uh, or just this past year. Um, uh, and obviously, people watching the Bucks know that he's a valuable player, um, but maybe they don't necessarily know how valuable he is because, according to our metric, he's been three point three points per one hundred better than an average player, uh, which would make you very valuable to have as sort of a supporting player um, around somebody like Giannis. So. I got my eye on those two guys, and like I said, Derek White is probably the highest-rated player uh, on that list, but at age 26, I mean, he's a big reason why San Antonio has been exceeding expectations, for sure. Um, but if we're talking about future potential versus you know current potential at age 26, we might be just seeing a guy who's really underrated and really good just in having one of his peak seasons, I guess, which is not a bad thing. Uh, obviously another note on all these guys, you know, I liked that you zeroed in on numbers 31 through 50. Cause it does give you, you know, it gives, gives you a mix of names uh, like Lonzo ball. Yeah. That's an interesting, uh, name to be on that list and sort of trying to figure out, you know, he's only 23. Uh, so, and he's been playing better this season than than last season mm -hmm. uh so he might have more growth potential but i think so much for so many of these guys uh centers around the situation that they're in mm -hmm. and um i think the majority of nba players like we we uh like to think about the stars and we like to think about the players that can be successful in any context in any situation but the vast majority of players, even players who are really interesting and really talented and have a lot of uh, really um, uh, intriguing upside potential, they are often a product of the situation and the fit and and the role that they're being asked to play. So uh, I, I think that uh, 
this 31 through 50 tier, if we're ranking, you know, young players or players that, that could be potential prospects, um, you know, to improve over the next year or two, uh, the, the situation and the fit is so important for them. And I think all of these guys in the right situation could be uh, really valuable players. And it just it's going to be interesting to see, like, you know, what uh, how many of them find their way into those roles, find their way into those situations and, um, you know, the ones that don't can they be reclamation projects elsewhere absolutely um the jazz we we gotta get to the jazz and the heat the the two the the main events of this podcast neil um the jazz in your estimation based on what you found in your piece and what you've been seeing from the jazz this season um are they just a regular season machine a souped up version of the hawks from years ago or are they realistic title contenders that can get through a situation where they beat the Clippers and or Lakers in the Western Conference Finals and then the Brooklyn Nets in the NBA Finals? Are they well enough equipped to do that? Well, I want to preface this by saying that this season seems a little bit less predictable than a Mm. normal NBA season. And I think that's important to remember. And that works in the favor of a team like the Jazz, I think, in the sense that you know, normally we have this like hard and fast rule uh, of, you know, you have to have X number of superstars or you have to, you know, have one of this like predetermined list of players that we all kind of know from before the season in order to realistically contend. And I don't think any of the the players on the Jazz, even, you know, your Rudy Gobert's, your Donovan Mitchell's, uh, your Mike Conley's, uh, I don't think anybody really had those guys as on their list of okay, these are title contending, leading type players. Uh, But I think in a season like this, uh, where there just is so much uncertainty around, you know, coming back from the bubble, coming back from the virus season, you know, still having the virus play a big role, at least, um, you know, to this point in the season, that I think maybe we can ease off on those um, those hard and fast rules, uh, maybe a little bit compared with history. Uh, and I also think that the perception of the Jazz as not being as superstar laden of a team or uh, not being one of those teams at all is maybe a little misguided. I do think you could make a case for somebody like Rudy Gobert to, while not being like obviously not a LeBron level uh, impact player, not a Kawhi level impact player, but being, you know, at the edge of that conversation. And I think the way Mike Conley has played this season, you could make a case for him too. He's been one of the most improved players uh, probably ever between seasons. If you look at him coming back from injury last year uh, and telegraphing a little bit of that improvement in the playoffs last year, and then, you know, just having this incredible season. Donovan Mitchell is another guy that, you know, has parlayed playing really well in the playoffs last year to, you know, playing really well this season. So I, I think it's a little bit of, you know, the rules around superstars might not apply as much this season. And then a little bit of, maybe the Jazz have more superstar talent on hand than we tend to give them credit for because we've kind of made up our minds, usually most seasons, about who are the stars that can lead superstar team, uh, you know, championship caliber teams. And, and maybe we have uh, left somebody like Gobert out of that conversation unjustly. I think part of it, too, is that, like, I think two things can be true. One, uh, I, we can stick to that rule that uh, has not plagued us the superstar rule we can just we can just stand by it for a little bit and also just be like this is an opportunity for them to prove us wrong like it's okay to just be like hey like the jazz it's a possibility like you shouldn't just write them off um it's okay to challenge preconceived notions about how we view sports and who can really contend and who doesn't um let's just see like that's why we play these games is to actually see what happens can the jazz impose their will and just how well they've mastered pick and roll offense and pick and roll defense with their players and you know if all of them are hot if Royce O'Neal is hot Bogdanovich is hot and Joe Ingles does enough <laughs> on the wing in defensive moments and it's like and Conley keeps this going for a full season then you never know maybe if they play this season back 100 times the Jazz win the title 25 times like and one of those 25 times is what actually happens I think it's a possibility right 
Yeah, and I think also, like, the flip side of it is think about a team like the Celtics. You know, Mm -hmm. that would be a team that maybe we would have considered Jalen Brown or some combination of, like, Brown plus Tatum or Walker or Smart or whomever as having the potential to be a championship team. And I'm not, like, writing them off, but based on the way that they've played versus a team like the Jazz, I do think that that kind of upends our expectations about, like, this exercise of trying to decide who can lead a team to a championship, you know, on paper uh, based on the the tiers in which they're in. Because uh, by all rights, the Celtics should be that team that's in that conversation, not the Jazz, on paper. And yet uh, I think that the way that the two teams have trended kind of flips it around on its head. Well, I think it's also just, like, how quickly things can shift in a year. And I think the Celtics in a in the jazz are interesting parallels here where like the jazz play a style that seemingly is more conducive to the regular season. The Celtics play a style that is more conducive to the playoffs, but also they both have a very, very expensive point guard around uh, a very uh, just enticing young wing uh, guard, whichever wing combo player, whatever you want to call them. Um, And that creates a problem because Mike Conley was not good last year. That really hurt the Jazz. That trade did not really look good last year. And we come into this year with lowered expectations for Conley, where it's like, oh, man, maybe this is it. And he's never going to get back to an all-star capable level. The flip side is Kimba is nowhere near what he was last year. So the Celtics trajectory just looks different because they're not getting the Conley-type production from him. So the Celtics stuff, I just... They're going to be faced with a very difficult decision. And if you look at the history of Danny Ainge, he doesn't make big midseason moves. That's just not what the Celtics do. They, so when people throw around, what are the Celtics going to do to get out of the 500? I'm like, probably nothing. Like, they're probably just not going to do anything because um, yeah. that's never what they do. Um, and they just hope that Kimba gets healthy. Like, that's what they're going to probably bet on is Kimba figures it out. And they paid Kimba a lot of money to figure it out. So you, you bet on the guy you paid a lot of money to. But also you let Gordon Hayward go for nothing except for a trade exception. And that really hurts because Gordon's been really good for, for Boston. But I think the most difficult situation that Boston f- will find themselves in in the next six months is Marcus Smart is our best distributor. And that's a problem. And if you want to have more conducive regular season success where you still have Jalen and uh, Tatum when you need it uh, come playoff time, but you need something to make the regular season easier for those two guys. Well, then you have to move Marcus smart for a, another guy who can move the ball in the Gordon Hayward type role because it's just, the offense is going to be stagnant. Like they, they don't get any hockey assists. They don't do any of the easy stuff that you use to grind out regular season wins. And I just don't see an avenue of them, them fixing that mid season. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think uh, it, it talks a lot about Kemba's, you know, health. I think, and and whether he's at, at full strength. Um, and if you want a comparison point on that, again, Mike Conley might be an interesting comparison point because he wasn't right for you know the majority of the regular season, especially early on last year. Mm-hmm. He kind of battled on through like hamstring problems and just wasn't the same player. And when you know the long layoff happened, they come back in the bubble. He's a lot better. You know, and I don't know if it's rest. I don't know if it's just, you know, getting right physically. It's probably a combination of all those things. And I don't know how replicable that will be this year uh, for for um, uh, somebody like Kemba. But it's an example of, you know, who who a team is now is not necessarily the finished product. And so mm-hmm. much of it has to do with uh, guys being banged up and fighting their way through. And Conley now obviously seems very right and he seems very um very healthy and and kind of playing his his best basketball maybe of his whole career which is saying something absolutely on the flip side the the miami heat they're getting healthy outside of jimmy who's still missing some time here and there kendrick nunn um back to his normal role and that's paid dividends for them um the Heat winning six straight. They have the longest win streak in basketball. They beat the Hawks last night because the Hawks um, do not know how to close a basketball game. That uh, is some breaking news that I would like to break on this very podcast. Neil, um, what has changed for the Heat? And are you now just like, okay, yeah, they'll be fine? Yeah, well, I was kind of waiting for this from them anyway, just because... I knew that they wouldn't keep playing at the level, the kind of listless early season level that they had been doing forever. Um, and so some of this is probably just 
regression back to a, a better mean, the the type of which that we saw from them when, when things were going right last season. Like, you know, they're shooting 37% from three uh, over this winning streak. That's better than they had been doing um, by by a little bit uh, going in. Um, and, and they're playing better defense, I think, also. You know, so it's a it's kind of a combination of a lot of different things um, coming together. And I I hesitate to think about them. You know, I mentioned teams that made a lot of changes and turned things over gelling because this is pretty much the same team from last year, you know, uh, give or take a little bit. It, it has not changed roster wise all that much um, from last year, uh, give or take maybe just Butler, whether he's in the lineup versus out. Um, and, and they were one of the teams that changed the least about their roster um, between, you know, last season and this season. Uh, but but I think the most of it can be explained by just them uh you know they were always going to find some kind of hot streak and and play better than they had been uh, to start the season just because like they're this is not a sub 500 team on paper you know I think I, I I had a little bit of a doubt about whether they could truly run it back and go to the finals again for instance I think that was a little bit much to expect from them just because everything kind of fell into place for them during the the playoffs last year uh, but at the same time you know they're too talented to to be where they were a couple weeks ago or a month ago they're a team unlike the Celtics that would actually do something and I I am curious to see what the Miami Heat eventually do because they have Bam, they have, they're nursing Jimmy and Jimmy's waiting for the postseason, but they still got to get there. Um, they still got to get there, and I, I don't know. I think bringing Goran Dragic back was a good thing, and just the chemistry. And you look at their young guys; they're developing well, but like the Tyler Hero question still looms large over that organization and what they really actually believe he can be. Um, and Pat Riley, we know is. Uh, He'll he'll make the he'll go the all chips in if he feels like he needs to and we haven't really seen a team respond to Giannis signing the the supermax in Milwaukee yet right like that is still looming is the teams that were preparing to make a real run at Giannis Antetokounmpo have not been like okay he's out so what do we do next that next move has not happened for any of these teams around the league that were like the Dallas's the Miami's who and even the Toronto's um, who were really poised to make a real run at Giannis. And now suddenly that's off the table. So who are you going to make a run at instead? And we haven't seen what they're going to do yet. It might be Bradley Beal. It might not. I, I don't know. I'm very curious to see um, what these teams end up doing. Um, what do you think Victor Depot is actually worth right now? Uh, Neil, do you, do you think he'll come to regret not just taking the two year extension in Houston and just revitalizing his career on a bad team and putting up some crazy numbers? Because when I saw that, I'm like, what does Victor Oladipo think his value is right now? And where does he think he's going to get? Does he still think because he works out in Miami that he's going to get the Miami money? I, I don't know. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty fair offer. Yeah. Uh, and I'm wondering, I mean, it's probably just comes down to, you know, he's a guy that uh, is he he's a confident guy. He wants to bet on himself. And, you know, he has played a lot better than he did, uh, you know, coming off of that injury. Uh, at least in our metric, he had been a little bit down. And this is a guy that was kind of an MVP candidate before he got hurt, uh, but was clearly not fully right. So um, I think he, he seems in a lot better of a place um, this season than, than he was even, you know, last season or much less a couple years ago. So I don't know. He's betting on himself. He's 28. Uh, so he's kind of in his prime. Uh, I think that teams are sort of hesitant to put down a lot of years, especially now in the, in the climate of, you know, reduced revenue from uh, not having fans in the stands that, you know, they're probably going to be a little hesitant to put big offers for long periods of time in front of guys that are, are in that like next tier of, you know, they're not necessarily franchise players. And I think probably Victor Oladipo thinks of himself as a franchise player. And he was that, uh, in Indiana. And I don't know. Uh, I think maybe there's a disconnect there between how Houston sees him because I thought that I liked that move where they picked him up, uh, in that flurry of, of moves around the Harden trade. It also and looked good when they were healthy, like did. wall, old depot wood. It looked good. Yeah. And I thought that that particular combination was an opportunity when you have Christian wood 
you know, making this huge breakthrough uh, mm-hmm. and, and John Wall looking more like the John Wall that we're, we're used to, that would signal, you know, this is the core that we can kind of reload around for a team that never really, in the past at least traditionally, and some of that is just they had Harden, but they're not a team known for having, you know, long periods of rebuilding and, and starting from scratch. They're a team that... Uh, basically continuously if you think back uh for a long period of time they were able to kind of go from almost going back to like the Hakeem Olajuwon era they never really had much longer than you know a year or two uh of kind of reloading and then they would get Tracy McGrady or Yao uh and then they would load from that and they would get Harden uh you know and, and so it's been a pretty continuous period of being competitive or at least you know, good, uh, in Houston. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested in if Oladipo is not part of their future, like what was the upside of that move? And, and also where do you go from here? Uh, and, and what does the future for that team look like? Because Christian Wood looks like a really, really great building block to kind of build the next competitive Rockets team around. And you would think somebody like, uh, Oladipo would, would also be part of that. I don't, he just seems like a really hard one to gauge like what he really wants and i don't think he knows what he wants i don't think he knows where he wants to be um the injury stuff really hurt him and just i'm sure it weighed on him a lot like the off the court drama with miles turner and everything he's just had a really really rough year um so i don't know i think he probably just wants stability and wants to get a four-year deal from someone and just someone to be like hey we we see you as our franchise guy not like the two-year deal signals we see you as a transitional guy And not someone we see as a cornerstone that we want to put billboards up for. And I guess he still sees himself as like the lead guy somewhere. And um, he wants someone to invest in him, which I understand. Yeah, I I was going to say, I don't think that that is necessarily wrong. I mean, maybe some of it is also proving that he has the durability yeah. to be that guy because I think that might be where the, the bigger element of the disconnect is not like his performance when he's on the court it's it's just his ability to stay on the court um and and uh you know i don't necessarily know that you would give a longer term deal to a guy if you knew that he was going to be you know in and out of the lineup so much absolutely you know where he actually makes a lot of sense this offseason who should really actually throw him a lot of money is orlando the original team that drafted him different group but they are they are weak in the the guard department and who knows when Fultz will get back and that's just such a sad story that feels like forever ago now. Um, yeah. Last thing, we'll wrap up here, Neil. The Pacers. I've always been very high on them. I'm very high on teams that literally play zero bad players in the rotation. I think that is an underrated part. And the Indiana Pacers have been a just a, a machine when it comes to we're only going to play competent, uh, average, or above average players at all times. Like every player on the court at all times will have some sort of role, some sort of upside that like, okay, these five all are quality NBA players. And I think that's always going to keep them in the top four. So when I saw like preseason stuff, like they're out of the playoffs, I'm like, there's no way they're too old. Who's the young guy? Like who is, who's the young guy who's upending this rotation where they're all 26 years old and know what to do on a basketball court. Um, I didn't ever saw it, but then they trade Victor Oladipo and they have the Karis LeVert thing that may or may not have saved his life, which is amazing. And he's away and he's coming back um, this month. Cause it's somehow already March now. Um, Brogdon's awesome. Like he's one of my favorite players to watch in the NBA just because of how different of a guard he is when you watch everybody else. Just he plays differently. Um, Doug McDermott is just a slashing machine. Sabonis, an all-star. Turner and him still work for whatever reason, but they're still struggling. They're in that hodgepodge now um, without the guard play they need, the scoring they need. And I'm not sure without TJ Warren, who another speaking of the bubble, just the bubble, Michael Jordan, TJ Warren, <laughs> not having him around and not having Karis LeVert because they moved on from Oladipo in that trade. Like they just, they need something there and they'll get LeVert back hopefully at full strength middle of March. But do you think they can survive and still be a playoff team with the group they have right now and relying so much on Sabonis and, uh, and uh, Malcolm Brogdon? Yeah, that's that's a great question because we're not used to seeing the Pacers be, you know, tied for the nine seed or whatever they are in the East right now, uh, especially given just the other teams that are in the mix. Are, are you joking that, you know, they're behind the Knicks? They're behind, you know, some of these other teams in this conversation. I, I always thought that the Pacers would, 
you know, just make the playoffs as a competent, if not, you know, uh, championship quality team, you know, every year for eternity. I thought that that was how, how things worked there. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, Sabonis has, you know, been hurt by not having more offensive firepower around him. I think that's uh, kind of one of the storylines of them. And you're totally right that, you know, they have not had that replacement uh, ever since they they traded Oladipo. And Lavert was supposed to be that. I'm hopeful that when he does come back, first of all, that it will be you know sooner rather than later. I think where it's supposed to be in March. Um, so so that could be you know after the right after the All Star break, or it could be you know deeper into the month, and that might actually make a big difference for them because that's the ingredient they've been missing, uh, as well as T.J. Warren played you know when he was healthy but uh just having a player in that role to replace Oladipo I think is is big for them uh and you know Sabonis I know he's an all-star um type player but uh you know if you look at the metrics defensively he's he's not the best uh if you look at his his impact at that end so you really need him to make a huge impact offensively and this year our system doesn't have him as being a uh, particularly great offensive player he's kind of average um and and if if your best offensive player if your your go-to guy on offense is going to be you know an average player and i guess brogdon has been better than that and you could say that he's been the the you know, a, a co go to guy for them. Um, but that's not necessarily a recipe uh, for being much better than, you know, a mediocre 500 ish team. And that's kind of been where they are hovering around the, the edge of the playoff picture, which is just weird to see them uh, fall to that level because they had been so great last year. Yep. And I think people were struggling for an explanation for uh, why they were so great. And I think you hit on something uh, really interesting the idea that. They just had an accumulation of pretty good players. You know, there's something to be said for just gathering a bunch of guys who play really good. Uh, maybe they're not amazing, and, and maybe none of them are superstars. Uh, but at the same time, if you just fill your minutes with guys that are competent, uh, you can make the playoffs and be a pretty good seed, I think. Um, and so that's that, that's been the difference this year is, you know, last year, just looking at the numbers of their top six players in minutes, five of them were pretty good, if not like really good. Uh, and this year, only two of their top five have been above average. And that's been uh, Justin Holiday and Miles Turner. So and Sabonis has had kind of a, a down year compared with last year. Uh, so I think that that tells a lot of the story of that recipe of filling all of your minutes with guys that are pretty good or having pretty good seasons just isn't quite the same this year. Absolutely. Well, Neil, this has been great. I appreciate uh, you making the time for me today. Uh, what can we check out from you across Hot Takedown, a very good sports <laughs> podcast that you should listen to, or uh, 538? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, uh, at 538, I'm kind of always writing about something. Uh, we put out a project last week uh, about, you know, after the news that MLB was officially recognizing uh, the Negro League statistics as being, you know, official major league statistics, uh, which I think was announced in, in December. We did this big project last week where it was kind of a get to know the stars of the Negro Leagues better. You know, if you're if you're a fan of a certain player, either a Hall of Famer or a current player, uh, we have a tool that allows you to find like, well, who was the Negro Leagues equivalent of that? So if you're a Mike Trout fan, well, Oscar Charleston uh, is is uh, his doppelganger among uh, the, these great players that are finally being recognized uh, for their accomplishments. So uh, I would encourage everybody to go and check that out at the site. Uh, it's it's a uh, interactive where you can kind of get lost in all the comparisons and spend a lot of time just scrolling through. We have these little like baseball cards that break down each player's um, uh, you know uh, what they were great at, and and that drives the comparisons as well absolutely well go do that keep up the great work neil thank you so much for the time i greatly appreciate it and uh we will check back in again soon absolutely thanks chase nicely done nephew chase thomas podcast hell yeah sugar ray leonard roberto duran Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns.
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.